I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 87th Texas Legislature. This week, Florida man. Police chiefs come and go. In September of last year, Renee Hall, the first woman to lead the force in Dallas, announced she'd step down at the end of 2020, ending a run of just over three years. This week, the top cop in Austin, Brian Manley, leaves his post after just under three years and a career of more than 30 years with the department. But it's unlikely that, as the saying goes, either of those two or their successors could be picked out of a police lineup. Art Acevedo is different. The outgoing Houston police chief is not as much of a celebrity as Bill Bratton, the former New York, LA, and Boston chief who pops up in newsy moments as a cable TV talking head, or even David Brown, the storied former Dallas chief and memoirist recruited a year ago to be the superintendent of the Chicago PD. But he's still a household name. So when the news broke earlier this month that Acevedo had accepted an offer to be the chief of police in Miami, heads turned. It had been only four years since he moved to Houston from Austin, where he'd spent nine years as chief. For a guy who likes to be in the spotlight trading more than a decade in two of the nation's largest cities for number 42 in population seemed curious. Miami isn't even the largest city in Florida, and its police force is a quarter the size of Houston's. There's also the matter of what Acevedo, who's 56, wants to be when he grows up. For a while, there's been speculation that his next gig would be in politics, not public safety, that he might run to be the mayor of Houston or even governor of Texas. So much for that. But even if he never gets a chance to make policy or veto bills, he has a strong point of view about those who do and about the merits of their work. I sat down with Acevedo, who was born in Cuba, raised in California, and spent the first two decades of his career with the California Highway Patrol, less than two weeks out from his last day on the job in Houston. So he was the law enforcement version of dead man walking, more punchy and unguarded, perhaps, than usual. Back in Austin, the legislature had been debating bills of great interest to him and his fellow officers across the state. The George Floyd Act, named for the native Houstonian who died while being taken into police custody last May in Minneapolis, and the umpteenth effort to legalize permitless carry of handguns. The hearing for the latter bill occurred in the wake of the mass shooting in Boulder, Colorado, which itself came on the heels of the Atlanta spa shootings. What a week. Acevedo and I talked about all that and more late on the afternoon of Friday, March 26th, day 74, of the 140. Point of Order is supported by CLEAT, the Combined Law Enforcement Agencies of Texas, an independent labor union funded solely by its members, fiercely advocating for fairness and justice for the hardworking men and women of Texas law enforcement, and by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, proud to support this conversation because public dialogue and civic engagement are important and play a role in improving the health of Texans. So Florida, huh?
Florida. There are there are people who think that place is crazy. You know that, right? Well, yeah, but that's what people said about Texas before I came here, right? What the heck are you going to Texas for? Well, there are still people saying that about Texas. People think <laughs> yeah. Florida is crazy. People think Texas is crazy. But there's no Texas man. There is, however, a Florida man. And you are now going to be Florida man, right? Uh, Florida. Yeah, I'll be Florida man. But but after 14 years in Texas, let me tell you, you, you can't appreciate that Texas uh, that Texas pride and bravado and attitude until you live here and. I will. I will most definitely be bringing a piece, a big piece of Texas to, to Florida, and uh, and uh, see how it goes down there. So, how come you're leaving, Chief? You know, it's uh, it's funny. Well, first of all, I'm born in Miami, and as a as, as a Cuban immigrant, you know that's where our journey started. I wasn't looking for an opportunity, but I have been reflecting as to what's next for me. Right, Mayor Turner is termed out at the end of this term, which is uh, a little over two years left. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I, I, what's next for me? I love public service. I love policing. This is a, an epic uh, moment in policing and a, and, a, and a watershed moment in policing. And I'm not, I'm not ready to walk away from the profession. And so when the, uh, m- the mayor of Miami, uh, Francis Suarez is called and uh, Art Noriega, his uh, city manager, uh, they, they worked uh, to get me there and, uh, and it was on my heart. It's the right thing to do. And so I think it's just the right thing at the right place at the right time. And I get to leave behind Troy Finner, who will now become the uh, police chief here. Someone that's been with me for four and a half years through thick and thin. And Matt Slinker will become the true number two. So it's a, it really has, it will create opportunities for others an opportunity for me to hopefully have a positive impact on uh, another great organization. So you've actually just answered one of the questions I had, which is, was this your idea or their idea? So they came to you. You didn't hear that there was a job available. You were not browsing Indeed or some other job site and happened to see the job and apply. They came to you. No, they came to me. And actually, I knew that there was a, because I'm the president of the Major State Chiefs Association, which is the 69 largest uh, departments in the country and the uh, nine largest in Canada. I knew that uh, George Kalina that was my colleague and of previous chief that he was, he had retired. I knew there's a search, but I thought they were already done with the search or about to name the, his replacement uh, when I got the call uh, out of the blue. And, but, but quite honestly, I mean, I found out today in the New York times, it just came out that I was being considered for director of the ATF. I mean, to me, and there's a report in the, in the you, didn't have a, you didn't have a conversation with the Biden administration about the ATF job. Not directly. No, but I did have a, 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 a great conversation with the sector of Homeland Security, Ali Alejandro Mayorkas, who's a, a great guy. And we, we talked about uh, Customs and Border Protection, be the commissioner. Uh, but uh, I ended up getting this call from Miami. Right. And, and those are the things I was contemplating. And then Miami called and uh, they made it where I couldn't say no to a great city, a great city manager, a great mayor, and hopefully a, a good uh, com- a city commission that's now, there. You know, Chief, the way this has been cast by some people it's being cast as a step back or a step down, that you're trading a police force of 5,400 for one, a quarter of that size. You're going from the fourth largest city in the country to the 42nd. I mean, Miami's not even the biggest city in Florida. Sell me on why this is a good career move for you at the moment. <laughs> well, first of all, I mean, it's a career, it's good for me and my family, right? At the end of the day, these decisions are very personal. But when you think about Miami, uh, you think about uh, the, the energy of that city, the international flavor of that city, uh, the beauty of that city. And uh, the fact is that the Miami is a city that uh, continues to grow. It'll hit 500,000 uh, this, uh, this, uh, this uh, time around with the census. 
But it's just a city that is just so vibrant. I've been visiting there since 75, arrived there in December of 68 on 12, uh, 26 of 68, processed as a political refugee. I, I don't care about the size. I mean, it's not about size. It's about impact. It's about impact in the profession. And a guy by the name of uh, Bill Bratton, who's one of my mentors and a friend uh, and, uh, and some of my other mentors have always said that we have to do what we can to impact the profession. I think I'm a, a an agent of change, a positive agent of change, yeah. uh, a city can call. And that's why I said, yes, not to mention I'm a beach guy, man. I'm an Islander. I was born on an Island and the, uh, and uh, I love Galveston, but uh, Galveston, uh, well, Galveston the, is not uh, Miami. Let's let's no. whatever else we don't agree on today. Let's agree. Galveston is not. Yeah, no, but I love Galveston. Right. Let's not be beat up on Galveston. No, no, but, no, no, no. Love Galveston. Totally. Um, uh, uh, Chief, uh, uh, here is a question you'll probably be unhappy that I'm asking, but I'm going to ask it because I need yeah. to ask this. If I believe the press reports, you're making significantly more than the last Miami police chief in this new job. In yeah. fact, you're probably making more if I'm doing the math right than you were making in Houston. You understand that the salary of taxpayer funded officials is a topic of conversation in the press and the public. So you're going to get asked about it if you haven't already. What do you what do you say about uh, that? Uh, What do you say to people who say, my goodness, he's being paid so much money for this job and it's a quarter the size of the last job he had? Yeah, but it's but it also is a, a job that's going to come up with it, its own set of challenges and the, the dynamics there are, are, you know, they're pretty fluid. There's a lot going on in Miami. And uh, I would just say that, uh, you know, that uh, when you are going to try to approve somebody, uh, my salary here was about two ninety five, my compensation. But you have to look at the cost of living. And so if you want to be competitive, the it's harder and harder. It's getting harder and harder to get uh, sitting chiefs to actually put in for these jobs. And, you know, I don't I don't I mean, I, I get it. People are questioning it. That's their right. The media is going to ask the question. But uh, we negotiated in good faith. I'm going to go there and I and I can assure them of one thing. They're going to get their money's worth. I think you've known me long enough to know that uh, I am going to give it my all during the good times. And like I tell my team here, we don't get paid for the good for the good days. Right. Anybody can do this job. Uh, on the good days, but I think they're going to get a leader that's been uh, that has been a that has uh, been around the block a few times. Like I like to say, it may not be it may be my last rodeo, but it's not my first rodeo. And, yeah. and I think that with the challenging times ahead in this country in this current environment, uh, the mayor uh, uh, and the city manager, who really is the one that negotiated everything, uh, saw something in me, and I just hope I don't uh, disappoint them and that and that uh, they get uh, the value added that they were looking for. Right. You know, one of the reasons, Chief, that this was a shock to some people, leaving aside the fact that your name didn't surface publicly for the Miami job, as it often yeah. does before such a hire is made, is that there was some thought to your having a future in Texas politically, or at least you wanting to have one. Was that projection on the part of people who thought you might run for office? Well, I've been accused of being of wanting to run for office from the minute I landed in, uh, in Texas in 2007, right? Yeah. Every everybody from the left to the right. And, you know, uh, I, I'm not going to, uh, you know, BS people. Uh, I, I know I've been political, but I think that part of our jobs at leaders as leaders is to put ourselves at risk and to actually uh, weigh in on matters that impact public safety. And, uh, you know, I was asked over the last few years to run for several offices statewide and even for mayor here in Houston, once mayor Turner, uh, uh, turns out in a couple of years, but, but I like being a cop. I mean, I still go out on patrol. I get in chases, right. arrests. It's just, it's in my DNA. It's all I've done my entire adult life. And uh, I would never completely rule out a political career. But when you, when you focus on good policy instead yeah. of good 
political theater, you're really not electable. And I'm, I'm a realist. I can't be elected the dog catcher with safe districts and in a world where uh, decision or where uh, really uh, elections too often are decided uh, in the primary season. And, and let's face it, the primary voters may often are much more uh, extreme in terms of their views left and right. And that's not what I'm about. I'm about uh, moderation. And so I just I'm not electable, man. <laughs> so, so, so so then just deal with the reckless and unproven but widely shared gossip that you were considering running for governor in 2022. Yes or no? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, at I no can, time, at no time did you have a serious conversation about running for governor in 2022. So people who no, mentioned I, your name were doing so without your knowledge or without your blessing. I think people mentioned my name um, and were wishful that I would run uh, for statewide office. Uh, but uh, you know that's their wishes, not necessarily mine. Right. Uh, you know, and so look, it's flattering that somebody would think that I'd be. Uh, a, a good candidate for a statewide office. And, and quite, and quite honestly, sometimes Abbott does some things that just irks me beyond, beyond words. So let's, so let's talk about the governor. So leaving aside yeah. the question of you as a candidate for governor in 2022, what do you think about this governor? What do you think about the job he's done? What have you thought about him generally? What do you think about the job he did during the pandemic? What did he do after the storm? What is your read on the way out the door on Greg Abbott? I think Greg Abbott is lucky that uh, he hasn't had a, a, a real opponent, a, a, a legitimate uh, opponent. And if uh, if uh, Dan, you know, Dan Patrick or some other uh, big name jumps in the race, I think he's going to be in for a tough time uh, because he's really pandered a lot to, uh, to his out of touch base. And, you know, Texans are pragmatic people. They're result oriented people. Uh, you know, I can start way back with his uh, press conference on during Jade Helm. Do you remember that? How embarrassing yeah. that was where he bought into what we now know was uh, a foreign foreign actors that were made up this whole thing about Jade Helm. And Obama was coming to take our guns and he had that press conference. I don't know if you remember that or not. Well, I do. I mean, <laughs> we've gone from Obama taking our guns then to Beto taking our guns now. Well, it's yeah, but same but conversation, same song, different verse. Yeah, but Beto's his own worst enemy, right? When he said he's going to go door to door. Yeah, I would do that. Uh, I just I hope the Democrats. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, he's electable after making the, a statement to that effect here in Texas, yeah. because even even uh, even people uh, with these by their names don't believe that the government should be going door to door. And again, you, you just got to, you know, moderation is the key to to uh, winning the hearts and minds of most Americans. And I think that's why there's so much political frustration in our country. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Chief, let me just uh, ask you, because you mentioned the question of mayor of Houston and you said yeah. people to talk to you about the possibility. Um, Mimi Swartz of Texas Monthly, right after your announcement, wrote the following. The police chief had made a gentleman's agreement with John Whitmire, dean of the Texas Senate, not to run against him should the Houston lawmaker, that would be Senator Whitmire, seek the mayor's office, as has been speculated. Art and I are best friends, and he and I agreed months ago that we both wouldn't be in the race, said Whitmire, who conceded that while he'll run for re-election to the Senate in 2022, he's been exploring a mayoral run. Is that a true story? Did you and Whitmire talk about the mayor's race and agree we're not going to run against each other? Only one of us will run. Boogie was in your lane. Is that what <laughs> happened? No, let me tell you. John Whitmire is, I am uh, probably the biggest fan. Uh, one of his biggest fans, and I would say he's one of my biggest cheerleaders and fans. He's uh, he's a friend. He's a mentor. And, you know, he actually uh, put in my mind, and I think he talked, and I know he talked to Mayor Turner about me coming here. 
Uh, John Whitmire has encouraged me uh, in the last couple of years to consider running for mayor. And, uh, and, uh, and I've always told them, I don't think that's my thing, man. Sitting at the dais talking, you know, for hours on end is I'm an action oriented person. I just don't think that would be my thing, but it is something that he talked to me about. Uh, and I, and I've always told him that he's the Dean. He loves this city. And I think that he would take the city from where it's at today under Mayor Turner, who's done a great job, and and then keep it moving in the right direction. So you think he's going to run, Chief? You think that Senator Whitmire will be a candidate after uh, Mayor Turner is done? I hope so. Uh, I, I don't. I think that that's not a a, a for sure thing. Yeah. But I can tell you, I love John Whitmire so much because people think they know John Whitmire, but I know him in terms of what he really thinks, what drives him, yeah. and he. You know, solving problems is is what he's about. And what I love what when we talk, he says, you know, people want to know if I'm moderate, if I'm progressive, if I'm conservative. And I like to say I'm practical. And he's right. He's a practical uh, leader. And I think that uh, he's a problem solver. And I hope that he runs because I think if he he were to win, it would it would uh, continue the city in the right trajectory after uh, Mayor Turner and the job he's done. I asked you about Governor Abbott. Let me ask you in very brief to give me your assessment of first Mayor Turner and then Judge Hidalgo, two people you've probably had a lot to do with over the last couple of years. What do you think about the mayor quickly? What do you think about Judge Hidalgo quickly? I think if you look at everything we've gone through for the last uh, four and a half years that I've been here with the mayor and everything he's gone through as a mayor, uh, you know, storms, ice storms, hurricanes, you name it. If it's happened, it's happened in Houston. And uh, Sylvester Turner is probably the hardest working member uh, elected official I've ever had the honor to work with. He works 24 uh, seven. And I think that he has been uh, he's done a phenomenal job. Uh, he's got a great heart. He loves people. And, yep. and I think he's fantastic. How about uh, the judge? Judge Doggle, uh, you know, she's done a good job, but we we don't see eye to eye on criminal justice or, you know, and I think she uh, she gets a lot of, um, uh, you know, she wanted to have all the children leave juvenile hall because of the pandemic. And I just go down down the line and I, I think she'll continue to grow into the job. I, I think on balance, she's done a great job, but she's got to be real careful because she should. I think that some of these progressives that think we should coddle violent criminals they're wrong. They're wrong on the policy and they're wrong on the politics. Uh, people, communities of uh, that are impacted by violent crime, they're disproportionate, disproportionate communities of color. They don't want to cut. Co- they don't want anyone to coddle violent criminals. They want to feel safe. And so that, I think that's one of the areas that she's going to have to evolve if she's going to be successful. Yeah. Why she's going to be very vulnerable. Uh, Chief, let me ask you about some business before the Texas House. After all, this podcast is supposed to be about the legislature. So let me ask you about legislative business. First of all, the George Floyd Act, which was laid out this week in the Homeland Security and Public Safety Committee by your fellow Houstonian, Sanfronia Thompson. Among other things, as you know, it would ban chokeholds and it would require law enforcement officers to intervene if another officer is using excessive force on the job. Do you support those two provisions? Absolutely. Uh, I, I think I support them. And any any police office, any police executive or even police labor leader doesn't support those uh, probably don't believe don't belong to be in the profession. Yeah. And I just hope and pray that the legislature and the, the constitutional officers will pass reform, because yep. if they don't, it's going to be a long summer in Texas. People are going to take to the streets again. Uh, we we have to have reform. It has to be reasonable. It has to be smart. Yep. And I 
that those are just not they're they're just it's a no brainer for me. And it should be a no brainer for the legislature as well. My colleague, Jolie McCullough, our criminal justice reporter who covered the hearing, <clears throat> wrote yesterday in the Tribune that the sticking point for a number of Republican legislators seemed to be the proposed end of qualified immunity. Would that be a sticking point for you? Would you support the bill if in the final bill was an end to qualified immunity? I think that uh, ending qualified immunity is going to be very problematic uh, for any bill. Uh, if you, talk you, would, to, you, would, you would remove it because I, I heard people say yesterday we have to have it in there, given what's going on. You would take you, it out. You, you can't, you've got to have qualified immunity. Yeah. And I think that uh, progressive members of Congress, including some of the leadership, recognize that the last thing we need is police officers. First of all, we're having a hard time recruiting nationwide. Right. And secondly, we don't want them to become so risk averse that they just they just de-police. So uh, qualified immunity, uh, getting yeah. rid of it, I think is a non-starter and you're not going to see that happening in Texas and you won't be seeing it at the national level either. That's my prediction that yeah. it, it, they pass anything. It will only be without getting rid of qualified immunity. So the uh, recruitment thing, too, the recruitment thing, which you call that, it, that really is an issue, right? The head of the Texas Municipal Police Association says if you get rid of qualified immunity, you're going to have problems with recruitment and you're going to have problems with retention of officers. You think that's true? No, absolutely. We, we know that that's true because we're we're seeing at the national level. Well, I'm very fortunate in Austin and Houston. We haven't having a problem recruiting, but uh, we're seeing that many, many agencies are having t- trouble recruiting. And if yeah. I were to be told tomorrow, hey, chief, uh, you no longer have qualified immunity and you're going to lose your house or your pension over what some 23 year old cop decides to do in the middle of the night while you're asleep with your family. Uh, despite the fact you trained them to do it one way and they did it some other way, uh, I can tell you that the very next day I, I, I would be done uh, being a police chief because yeah. it's just uh, you, you can't put your family at risk. And I think most progressives uh, get that. That's activists that want it. And uh, well, but you know, Chief, Mrs. Thompson, you know, Mrs. Thompson, Mrs. Thompson says as she laid out the bill, she said this is not about punishing good cops. It's about punishing bad cops. Yeah, but the problem is you're going to have to uh, perceptions, reality. And the reality is that it's going to have a tremendously negative impact on policing. Uh, we want police officers to be risk appropriate. We want them to actually be uh, be be 110% committed to the safety of the public. And if they think that they may end up losing their home or, or what have you, uh, you know, uh, we may be in trouble. Look, just last night, the Supreme Court just yesterday ruled uh, came out with a ruling that's making it easier to sue law enforcement. So the law is evolving. There's no need to get rid of uh, qualified immunity, immunity that I think will have those impacts. Let yep. the court do it and, uh, and, and we'll be fine. Look, George Floyd's family got $27 million uh, settlement. So I don't think that qualified immunity is an issue. Uh, Chief, the world has turned, it seems, with regard to the police. I don't know that in my lifetime, at least, there's been as much of a yawning chasm on trust, right? There's this issue of trust in communities. What happened? I'm not saying that trust is necessarily something, uh, the, the lack of trust is, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm not, I'm not making a qualitative judgment. I'm just acknowledging that if you look around, we have a trust problem between law enforcement and, and communities in some places. What happened? What do you think happened? Well, first of all, let's be clear. There's a lack of trust with government, period. Yeah. Uh, so it happens that the law enforcement is the most visible uh, piece of government, right? But people don't trust the Congress. They don't trust the legislature. They don't trust the governor. They don't right. trust the president. But they're not it's- worried that the president or the governor is going to kill them 
in a traffic stop. I mean, to be perfectly frank, yeah. right? This, no, this I, is a different conversation than just any institution not getting trusted. Yeah, but but the problem is not just uh, the, the the problem is that we live in a world of twenty four hour news cycle. 365 days a year uh, and the internet and cyberspace and social media. And when the cops do something wrong and, and kill somebody like George Floyd, uh, it, it, it rightfully so garners the national attention and then it stays in the national attention. And then the problem is that there's no context to the fact, the fact that remains today that the vast majority of the work being done by police officers is is professional, it's appropriate, it's respectful, uh, and that they're they're taking care of a lot of very critical, uh, dangerous, fluent situations without overreacting or using deadly force. But we can't bring uh, context to that, and and you know it's hard for us to say, hey, look at we like we had the the Chavez shooting here, Nicholas Chavez, where we killed a young man that was in crisis and uh, high and. Uh, you know, we killed them. I fired four people. So so my activist community wants to say that, oh, the department doesn't know how to handle it. Well, we had 50,000 calls, many of them very similar that didn't go wrong. And so that's the biggest challenge is how do we bring how do we put these bad actors and these bad incidents and provide the context that, yeah, it happened. It's a, it's outrageous. We need to hold them accountable. But we need to also remember, like at the Capitol on January 6th. Where there's where there were some cops off duty there, including one of mine that stormed that Capitol. But there were hundreds of police officers that gave their all and one even gave their lives defending the seat of government. And so I think we have to not just talk about the bad constantly because that's what's happening. We got to We got to also talk about the good being done by these men and women. Do you think there's more transparency necessary uh, from law enforcement that would possibly get at this question of trust. I mean, you know, I'm not telling you something you don't know, that you have been criticized over the time you've been chief for resisting releasing body camera footage in certain cases. And you've had an explanation for why you thought that was the wrong thing to do at that time. But it seems like the drums are beating for more and more transparency and that transparency may be one way to restore some of the lost trust. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. Uh, we do need to uh, change the way we do these things. I think here in Houston, we've been ready for quite a while now to start releasing videos. My DA uh, doesn't have a problem with it. Well, if she doesn't have a problem with it, then I don't have a problem with it. People want information. Uh, there's so much misinformation about police incidents now that spread like wildfire that we have to move to release a body-worn camera video sooner rather than later. And you're going to see that in Houston across the country where at least within, in most cases within, uh, you know, no more than, uh, you know, three to three to four weeks are all be released uh, in the interest of transparency. And just keep in mind, it also, it's time consuming. You have to redact a lot of things. Uh, but I think that's the wave of tomorrow. And I think that yep. tomorrow's very quickly. The conversation around policing these days, uh, Chief, almost always turns to race. Do you believe that law enforcement generally has a problem with race, that the system is racist or that there needs to be more, more sufficient, uh, more aggressive training of law enforcement um, on, on the question of how to deal with communities of color? This has been a persistent conversation for as long as I can remember. What do you think about that? Look, we, we hire people from society and if you think about what's going on in society with the, you know, the growing threat of uh, white uh, supremacy and, and militia groups and militia movements, you, you have to assume that if it's a growing problem with homegrown extremists for the right uh, and the FBI assessment is, is probably the, the biggest emerging threat in the country right now, then you have to assume that it's going to happen within your ranks. 
That's one. So, uh, well, no, we don't grow officers on petri dishes. So we know we've got bad apples and bad actors. And I like to say bushels because there's more than just a handful. Right. Right. Uh, but having said that, you're not, not condemning the whole orchard. It sounds like. Though. No, you can't. I think the yeah. problem policing is police chiefs that don't get rid of the bad actors. Don't get rid of the bad, bad, uh, the bad people in the department. It's a, it's a problem of leadership because the majority of cops are good people. Uh, the problem is that people understand and see, when they see bad policing, they recognize it. And too often we have police departments still in this country that have you heard the term lawful but awful, right? Yep. The, the shooting, the, the, the shooting by the officers were lawful, uh, but Lord, the circumstances were awful. Will, will you well, be judged? Will you be judged chief after you're gone as one of those chiefs who dealt with the bad apples? Well, if you talk, if you talk to any union, they're going to tell you that I'm a tell of the hunt, right? That I'm uh you know, that I uh, lumped off a lot of heads. But you know what? I always say that I didn't fire anybody. They got themselves fired. We've probably had to run out here in Houston about 240, 250 cops since I've been here in four and a half years. And yeah. I'm not going to apologize for that, you know, it's uh, because what I was about to say about that lawful but awful, well, if it's so awful, why are we not firing them? And so we've got to hold people accountable by awful. So even if the courts in terms of criminal justice uh, there's no culpability there criminally. Administratively, we got to get rid of uh, officers when they act in an awful manner, no matter how awful it is. Uh, uh, Chief, this was also the week, in addition to the George Floyd Act, and of course, let's acknowledge it's just after the mass shooting at the supermarket in Boulder, and it also yep. follows the shooting before that in Atlanta. Yep. This is the, also the week that the very same House committee, heard, the Homeland Security and Public Safety Committee, heard testimony on a bill to permit constitutional carry, permitless carry. What do you think about that? I think it's, uh, you know, once again, there goes Governor Abbott, right? Uh, tried well, Governor to, Abbott didn't introduce the bill. This was members of the legislature in fairness, yeah, but, and they've tried but, before and not succeeded. What do you think about it? I think they need to kill it again. I mean, let's let's be real. I was very proud about three, four sessions. I think it was three sessions ago. It came out of the committee, the Huffines Amendment. I don't even remember that, which basically uh, was a backdoor constitutional carry. It is asinine. Uh, firearms belong in the hands of law-abiding Americans of sound minds. Most, the vast majority of gun owners, Texans, agree with uh, with that uh, mindset and don't support constitutional carry. But I brought up Abbott because with all the things we have going on, we almost lost a power grid. We were within four minutes of losing power for weeks, if not months in Texas. And his priority is the Second Amendment sanctuary state. Just so much hogwash political theater. And he wants to know why uh, Texans are starting to get tired of of of, of just the, the, the nonsense. Is that really the priority with all the problems we have going on in this state and in this country? So as a police chief, uh, chief. What is your reaction to a mass shooting like the one in Boulder or in Atlanta? Or, of course, it seems like in pandemic time it was 200 years ago, but just two years ago in the summer we had the shootings in El Paso and in the Permian. From a public policy standpoint, as a police chief, what is the answer to these shootings? The answer is to once again deal with it and realize you're never going to stop 100%. Uh, but what we need to do is we need universal background checks. We need real red flag laws where we can remove firearms from individuals that are in crisis. And, and, and to be honest, you know, there should be a way for people to get their rights restored once they're done with that crisis. But there definitely are uh, measures that can be taken. They're pragmatic. They're supported by most Americans. Uh, but it's time for 
uh, the left to stop being wor- they're worried about uh, police labor. They're, they don't want to make them. They don't want to anger them. So they're very ginger, gingerly uh, proceeding. And from the right, they need to stop worrying about the NRA because the vast majority of gun owners support some of these uh, pragmatic measures. And it's just time to yep. time to act. No more, you know, no more prayers, no more any of that stuff. Pray. But you know what? People get elected to uh, legislate and to lead, not just to pray. You uh, talked about uh, the question of uh, progressives wanting to give violent criminals a little bit more freedom when we were talking, I think, earlier about Judge Hidalgo. That was something that you yeah. referenced. You know that bail reform is a hot topic these days. A lot of the conversation about the reform of the bail system to date has been about eliminating cash bail to make the system fairer, not weighted against people of more modest means. But of late, the governor, somebody who you don't agree with on some things, maybe you agree with him more on this, and other elected officials have been driving a different version of reform talk, shifting it away from fairness and more toward public safety. You, You yourself have have said we need to be thinking when it comes to bail reform about risk, risk to public safety, risk of reoffending. Do you think yeah. that the governor is right that the bail system needs to be reformed, but in a way that tightens things up as opposed to loosens things up? No, I think that what we need to do is be smart on uh, with bail reform. Money should never be the factor. I agree with that. I agree with that with progressives. You know, people, it should be about assessing the risk to the safety of the public. And, you know, when you're going around shooting people up and and doing drive-bys and robbing people at gunpoint and murdering people, I would say you have a high risk. So guess what? We need to hold you, regardless of how much money you have, regardless of your socioeconomic standing. It should be a risk to the safety of the community, a risk of reoffending and risk of absconding and a risk of flight, not money. And so if we just would come up with some real, uh, uh, you know, evidence-based uh, risk assessment tools, it, that's what it should be about. But at the end of the day, you know, what, the bail bond industry will ha- play a role and, uh, and so would other folks. So uh, I'm afraid that if I come back in four or five years to Texas, we'll be, we'll still be having this conversation. And people well, are still- everything, everything's political, Chief, right? Nothing is yep. not political. Um, yep. And, and speak, speaking of that, we heard a lot of talk during the campaign about defunding the police. That became a phrase you heard a lot during the election season. I'm not really aware of anybody who is actually for that or who has done that, really, right? I mean, there's a discussion around redirecting funding for public safety. I mean, you had the interim police chief following Brian Manley in your old city of Austin say yesterday, to the legislature, just because money was moved out of our budget does not mean that whatever that money was responsible for is no longer being done. He's saying basically, you know, we're doing some shifting around of funds, but we're not actually defunding. What do you think about this? Yeah, well, let me just say this. You know, uh, you can thank the city of Austin City Council with their defunding the police and Greg Kassar, who sometimes I think he thinks he's Che Guerrero, right, with his attitude and his socialist type views. Uh, that, no, no, Chief. That, tell us what you tell us what you really think about Greg Kassar. Don't hold. I, back. I think I think that debate uh, completely torpedoed the uh, the the Democrats. You know, there are those who take out the take back the House, but their goal is to remove 150 million dollars from the budget of the Austin Police Department. I mean, that is a fact. Yeah, but they the mayor, 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 Mayor Adler pushed back on that every time he, you you talk about somebody would talk about defunding 
uh, public safety, he would say what we did was we reallocated that money to other things that were still relevant to the overall goals we had for the city. You're calling BS on that, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, look, when the police department had to stop taking certain calls, had to move people out of units, had to uh, completely rechange their redeployment because the because at the end of the day, they had fewer bodies. Uh, that's the funding. And, uh, you know, th- look at what they when you do things without uh, without really being thoughtful. Look at what happened with the let, let's get rid of the tent ordinance. And now, you know, Austin looks like a scene out of Mad Max when you drive through the city. Such a beautiful place. They spent 70 more. They, I think they put 70 million dollars of reimagining Austin into homeless, uh, uh, you know, services. And rather than uh, reducing the number of homeless, uh, I don't I, I want them to look at Austinites and ask them and Austinites ask themselves, do you feel like the problem has gotten better or worse? And I think we know the answer to that. Uh, uh, Chief, uh, just on the question of Austin, you know, Austin's taken a very different approach from other cities on the things we're talking about, uh, the, the reallocation of money on public safety or on homelessness. This has put Austin in direct opposition with not only Governor Abbott, but also it's created the possibility that all cities will now see legislation that will affect what they're allowed to do. Do you think Austin's leaders have been in any way politically irresponsible as it relates to the spillover effect on other cities? Look, uh, do you remember the sanctuary city bill that we fought so hard? Sure. HB4, uh, I believe it was. That uh, was several sessions ago, right? Yeah. 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 That all started with the... We're a sanctuary city in a sanctuary county, right? That that silliness, acting like we're not going to go after crooks in Austin, and that lasted, uh, led to HB4 or SB4 uh, that created so much angst for communities around here. You know, they, they forget where they're at. And every time that they go out in left field uh, with the legislature sitting right there, it ends up uh, with an yep. action that ends up hurting the rest of the state. And so, you know, you've got to be thoughtful, not just thoughtful in your policies, but thoughtful in your words and, and thoughtful in how you proceed because uh, you don't want the unintended consequences of being targeted and of cities being targeted. And I'm just proud that works for Mayor Turner and a city council that recognizes that this community, the, the community with the largest minority uh, concentration in the state of Texas and the most diverse community in the nation uh, didn't want less policing. They want a better security, better policing, and they want to feel safe. And so they didn't defund. They used the CARES Act funding to restore five academy classes while Austin was going in the opposite direction. Yeah. Um, well, so on the question of people feeling safe in Houston, let me ask you about the homicides uh, rate, homicide rate and homicide clearances in Houston. Um they're up 44%, if I read the numbers correctly, or at least in November, they were said to be up 44%, while the homicide clearance rate, which had been as high as 87% at one point in the last decade, is now down to about 57%, a lower percentage than Phoenix, Philadelphia, San Antonio, Los Angeles, New York. If the city feels so safe, and if the, the mayor and the city are approaching public safety in the same way that you're describing, why is the homicide rate up? Why is the homicide clearance rate down? What's going on here? Well, as of this morning, our homicide clearance rate is up uh, to about 64%. Okay. We still still down from the highs, though, right? Yeah. Well, that, that high was about 10 years ago. The city looked a little different uh, back then. Right. And the criminal justice system back then wasn't shut down. This criminal justice system here has been shut down uh, for I don't know how long. We have... 
we're pushing 50,000 felons that haven't gone to trial here. Yeah. You know, this, uh, this attitude of innocent to proven guilty. Okay, great. Uh, that's, that's why they think that no one should be held pre pre conviction, but whatever happened to the right to a speedy trial, you know, people are waiting three, four years. Uh, when you live in a high crime neighborhood or a high crime, uh, uh, you know, apartment complex, and you know that that gangster that just shot somebody and killed somebody is going to go in one door and out the other. I hate to break the news to people, but that has an impact. It has an impact on people's willingness to cooperate with the police because they're they're fearful. Then the guy has three years, four years to whack a and uh, you know snuff out a a witness in their mind. And and in here in Houston, it's actually happened where we've had a witness uh, murdered. Uh, it is a problem. It has. So you don't, you a, don't think that the public safety community, the police, or law enforcement, or anybody else bears any responsibility for the rates being up and the clearances being down. No, okay, but no, our clearances are actually, uh, again, they're on their way up. Well, of yeah. course, we bear some of the responsibility. But, you know, uh, the difference is that our actions and our impacts and uh, are very visible, while the actions of the judiciary are not. Yeah. If people only knew what's going on with these activist judges where, you know, we asked the DA for permission uh, to actually, uh, to before we arrest somebody, we actually get pre-arrest, uh, authorization from the DA's office. So the DA's office finds probable cause. I can't begin to tell you how many of these people were arresting that uh, with, with per perfectly fine probable cause that these activist judges are deciding, uh, no, there's no probable cause. They're just making up the law. They're just doing whatever they want to do. And so, yeah, we, we bear part of the responsibility but I assure you, when the facts start coming out and the arguments start coming out, yep. uh, and if the legislature passed laws making them actually put out all the data, all the information from the courts, like we do with racial profiling and use of force and complaints, courts need to start being more transparent. Because when people start figuring out what's going on with these uh, activist judges, they are, and, and activist DAs, uh, Kim Og is uh, much better than her critics give her credit for. She's, she's actually trying... Uh, her best with uh, limited resources and with a judiciary that's that's absolutely broken. Um, OK, so last question, Chief. Uh, you mentioned Troy Finner, who is your successor, named by yeah. Mayor Turner to be the new chief. So uh, there's a tradition when a president leaves office that he, up to this point, it has only been he, writes a note, handwritten note that he leaves in the desk <laughs> drawer of the resolute desk, basically, advice or guidance or a Bible verse or something. What would the note be or what will the note be in the desk drawer for Troy Finner, from you to Troy Finner. Basically, here's the one thing that you need to be thinking about or the one thing I wanna tell you as advice. The one thing uh, I'm gonna tell him is keep fighting. Keep fighting for those little kids where in the neighborhoods where he grew up that are being killed, that are being maimed, that are being hurt uh, by these gangbangers that are being coddled by the judiciary because you were one of those kids at one point in your life and uh, we've been their voices and I look forward to seeing you be a voice for them as well. You've been listening to Point of Order, a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, Art Acevedo, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Cleet and Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 87th Texas Legislative Session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. 
Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.